Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror pop culture related, so I suggest checking it out while you're listening to this episode. Now before we get started, I do have some news to share with you. You may have noticed that I missed last week's episode, and for that I do apologize. But I was going through some changes with my podcast host and the provider, and it was just kind of a mess. So I am on a new network now. It is called Podbean. You probably have heard of it if you've ever listened to a podcast before. It's very popular. And the Acast is out the window. It was just getting too much. It was too expensive, and the analytics were all over the place. So I had to move, and that's why last week was a no-show. Also, it is very, very hot today where I am, and I'm recording in my one-bedroom apartment, and my dog is almost dying of heat exhaustion. I have fans and air conditioners going, but it doesn't matter. It is consistently 92 degrees in here, so you may hear her panting in the background. I do apologize for that in advance. But on to the cast itself today. Now, we've all heard of curses. There's ancient Egyptian curses, there's Greek curses, there's all sorts of different curses throughout the world. But in the 1980s, there was a very strange curse that had to do with the painting of a crying boy and the fires associated with it. This is the Crying Boy Painting Fires. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. We all know of the Warrens and their collection of cursed objects from Annabelle's doll to a cursed music box. But one thing that isn't in their collection that I'm aware of anyway is the painting of a boy crying. And believe it or not, there has been a lot of media coverage on this, especially fairly recently. It's been rediscovered, I suppose, by the internet. And it all takes place in the 1980s, and it pretty much started with a tabloid magazine called The Sun in England, or the UK. The story of the painting is that a fairly unknown painter drew inspiration from an orphaned boy, who he invited into his studio to paint. The painting was then mass-produced and sold to thousands of homes across the UK and maybe even the world. That is, until a fire struck. A tragedy. People lost everything. Everything except for that one painting, which seemingly escaped the fire unscathed. Now how is that possible? It was an oil painting. They should have went up in flames, even though it was mass produced. It should have caught fire with everything else in the house, but it didn't. Now the website Atlas Obscura did a huge article on it, so I'm going to read chunks of that for you right now. And it starts off very ominously. No pun intended. In the middle of the night, in Thatcher-era England, a home in South Yorkshire succumbed to a fire. The lounge room was charred black, drapes and furniture reduced to ash. The owners of the home, Ron and May Hall, lost nearly everything to the blaze except for one item, a painting of a crying boy, his wide eyes looking out from the wreckage, not even blackened by smoke. This wasn't the first time a picture of a crying boy had been found amid the ashes of a torched home. On September 4th, 1985, British tabloid, 
The Sun published Blazing Curse of the Crying Boy Picture, a story about a very unlucky painting that caused fires, supported by the comments of a local fire station officer. These paintings, the firefighter said, turned up mysteriously unscathed in fires across the UK, all of which started spontaneously. It was well known he would never think of owning this cursed painting himself. Quote, the couple had laughed off warnings, end quote, that their painting was cursed, wrote the son. Let all other heed the warning and get rid of their own giant paintings of crying children immediately. If the fact that the paintings of crying kids were hung in living rooms of multiple households makes you double take, you're not alone. The paintings, an odd relic of mass printed art, were readily available in stores during the 50s through 70s and tended to appeal to young couples. While the paintings have not been reprinted for decades, their bizarre subject matter and backstory have kept the legend going, from copy-pasted internet legends to local bookstores. The legend of the crying boy painting seems to have begun with the sun, fueled by obscurity of the crying boy painting's artist. The artwork bears the prominent signature of one Giovanni Bragolin, but for quite some time no one could find information about the man. Rumors abounded. He painted hundreds of crying children, many of them street urchins, it was said, in either Italy or Spain. Finally, a 2000 book of creepy stories called Haunted Liverpool claims that in 1995, a well-respected school teacher called George Mallory discovered that the painter was actually a mysterious figure named Franchot Savie. The following backstory from 2000 seems to be a mashup of reported from the son and Mallory himself. One of the urchins he painted was a boy named Don Bonillo, who accidentally started a fire in which his parents died in Spain. From then on, wherever the boy went, a fire followed, prompting his nickname Diablo. Some believe the boy was adopted against the will of a priest and was abused by the painter. In the 1970s, the boy was consumed by fire as well in an explosion caused by a car accident. According to journalist David Clark, who researched the crying boy legend from 14 times, and on his website, the legend has more than a few holes. Giovanni Bergolin and Savie seem to have been one of a few pseudonyms for Spanish painter Bruno Amadio, and Clark could not find evidence that George Mallory nor Don Benillo ever existed. Amadio likely painted 20 to 30 of these crying boys after training in Venice after World War II, prints of which were sold in department stores throughout the 1970s, wrote Clark. Another artist, Anna Zinkesen, had a similar series of crying children paintings that were regarded as equally cursed. In The Martians Have Landed, Robert Bartholomew and Benjamin Radford reported that many people wrote to other newspapers in response to the Sun's coverage, including one woman who couldn't, quote, think of a reason such a lovely picture could suddenly be thought to be jinxed, yet wanted to toss it for safety's sake. Despite skeptics' responses to the public's distress, Via interviews and open letters, this story held. A post on the website of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry says that the son added salient details, such as that the urchin was mistreated by the painter, 
with the explanation that, quote, these fires could be the child's curse, his way of getting revenge. According to Clark, the son was competing for readers with the Daily Mirror, and the opportunity to develop the story arose, and the internet further grew the tale. Comedian and writer Stephen Punt also explored the legend on his radio show, Punt P.I. He attempted to track down the homes involved and found Jane McCutcheon, who had hung the print in her living room in the 1980s. McCutcheon, a mother of two, was cleaning her kitchen when she found that her handmade drapes, blinds, and curtains were suddenly ablaze. Her family escaped alive, but her home had been destroyed, except for a single painting hung in her living room of the crying boy. You could still see the little boy's face on the painting, she told Punt. Later, she heard a firefighter who saw the painting say, Oh no, not another one. After what was described as a series of coincidences and bad luck, McCutcheon speculated that the painting was indeed cursed, prompting her to get rid of it. Most of the fires had normal causes, like cigarettes or unwieldy deep frying pans, since most of the myths surrounding the nearly unbelievable fire resistance of the painting, Punt bought a crying boy picture of his own. After being inexplicably delayed on his destination several times, Punt began to feel a bit nervous about the possible curse. When he tested its fire retardancy by setting it alight with construction researcher Martin Ship, they found that beyond the string it hung from, it really didn't burn. While the lapel of the boy's jacket was singed and the painting suffered a hole, the damage stopped pretty quickly. This may have been due to a fire retardant varnish, and he and Ship surmised, which would easily account for why the painting would remain little, touched in burned homes across the UK. During his own investigation, Clark also discovered that the painting was printed on a compressed board, making it more difficult to burn. Such explanations would not have sufficed in 1985. In the middle of the story's initial heyday, the Sun decided to take the legend further, requesting that the public send their crying boy paintings to them to be destroyed. According to the Sun's editor, the office got swamped in crying boy pictures, but the editor refused to display the paintings in the office himself. Quote, Picture is a fire jinx. The paper reported, a week after its first article on the curse, the Sun published The Crying Boy Curse Strikes Again, though the painting under the headline was a completely different painting of a crying boy. The story was much the same. An ordinary fire turned creepy when an unscathed picture of a crying boy was found hanging in the house. The legend of the crying boy survived into the internet age and even sparked fan clubs. If you search for this online today, you'll sadly find that the fan club has since dissolved, but evidence of its existence in 2002 is preserved on artist and coder Mario Klingman's former blog, where there were discussions of crying boy painting sales and a Holland-based club. Klingman first got into the legend through the art of Laura Kikauka, who replaced the crying boy's eyes with red LEDs and for him, the painting's weirdness is the allure. Quote, The legend is a nice add-on. I think as a child, when we did holidays in Italy back in the 1970s, I had also seen those pictures sold at some street booths. And I guess I found them quite peculiar back then, says Klingman, who also created a crying boy tear generator. Klingman has collected several of the paintings. 
occasionally fielding requests to sell or buy from enthusiasts. Despite his fascination with the story, Klingemann maintains that he does not believe in the curse. According to Gail Nina Anderson in her paper about art folklore, the crying boy legend grew quickly because everyone could participate. The paintings were cheap and easy to find. The crying boy painting legend became so widespread that it grew to include all versions of similar paintings by various artists, including cursed paintings of crying girls. The Sun capped most of its hype of the legend in 1985 article on Halloween with the headline, Crying Flame, gracing the front page. The paper claimed to dissolve the curse once and for all with the bonfire, burning sackfuls of paintings, which were sent to them by the public in response to their call. The bonfire blazed near the River Thames, dissolving the curse into smoke. The Sun, ever looking for reliable sources, quoted a chaperone to the event. A fire officer who said, with relief, I think there will be many more people who can breathe a little easier now. So what do you think? When it comes to curses, I think a lot of it is psychological. You associate something with something. I know personally I think things are cursed all the time. Of course not actually, but I associate miscomings or misgoings or misdeeds with certain objects. Back when I used to play baseball, if I didn't use a certain bat, well, the other ones were cursed. Sometimes a certain ball field was cursed itself and I couldn't pitch properly. There was just something about it. But of course, I was all in my head. Nobody else had any issues, so why was it cursed solely for me? We've talked about curses on this show before. Back when I did the Poltergeist episode, way back when. And we discussed how many people died after working on the Poltergeist movie. One being as young as, I think, 12 years old at the time. Of course, there are other types of curses as well. They're not always associated with objects, but sometimes places. We all know of the curse of Tutankhamun. Or there's even the curse of Oak Island, which has seven seasons of a reality TV show on the History Network. It's a fascinating one, and it's a Canadian one, so I might look at that one day, but it is a massive topic. As you can see, it has seven seasons. I do a 20-minute podcast. So there's a bit of a discrepancy there, and I don't want to do an episode that's not going to be done justice to the topic at hand. Nevertheless, curses are literally all around us, and they have been around since probably the beginning of time. And each culture seems to have their own take on the curse, from voodoo and hoodoo to Native Americans. Everybody has their own take of it, and everybody has their own curse. And for me personally, again, I think curses are a little fun at times. I know I've messed with my sister on many occasions, pretending to curse her, and she would freak out. Of course, I don't have any power to curse anybody. But isn't that where the power of the curse comes in? It's all about the mind, the power of suggestion, and what you can do in order to fool somebody into thinking they're cursed with either bad luck or, well, maybe life or death. Who knows? I certainly don't have the answers to that. Maybe somebody does. And if you know somebody who does, well, let me know. Maybe I'll try to get them on the show to talk a little bit more about curses. But until then, that is going to do it for today's episode. My name is Casey, and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Check us out on social media as well, on Twitter at HorrorShotsProd, on Facebook at Facebook, on Instagram at Ominous Origins Pod, or even on Twitch nowadays at twitch.tv slash muskyfox. That's fox spelled F-A-U-X. If you do want to support the show financially, you can do so by checking out our Redbubble store. The link for that is in the description. So if you want to rock some merch, best way to do it is through that link until I find another distributor. So until next week. <laughs>